time marches on. I've got to catch up anyway. Today is Tuesday, June 20th, 2006. And I'm going to read you some excerpts from soldier stories. Oh, I wanted to get away from the war, but I can't do that. Uh, These are dispatches from Iraq. And you can look for these. In the 12 June issue of the New Yorker, yes, the New Yorker has become my Bible. I mean, I read the nation, but the New Yorker has this, this style, you know? Anyway, as we all know, war is the master narrative, folks. Every generation seems to demand this tragic, uh, what is it? Have they got a death wish? The question, yes, the universal soldier. Why do ordinary citizens go to war? Could it be that some people enjoy it, you know, as a test? It's that warrior mythos. Uh, I remember my teachers years ago saying, well, no, war is just the failure of the imagination. I'm not really convinced of that. I don't think people are really surprised. Uh... But they all come up with that same spin. It's like, it's like the woman who says, you know, when she marries, she says she didn't know what she was getting into, and the soldier says he didn't know what he was getting into. Now, come on, you know. <laughs> it's like J. Robert Oppenheimer. What did he think he was doing? Inventing penicillin? Come on. Anyway, these dispatches from Iraq are fascinating, and they will be around. Uh, there's going to be a documentary in 2007. This is New Yorker, June 12th, and these are letters, emails, journals, personal essays by soldiers, airmen, sailors, and Marines uh, serving in the current war. Now, this is a project. This is part of a project sponsored by the National Endowment for the Arts. It's called Operation Homecoming. Uh, The American troops and their families were invited to write about their wartime experiences. The centerpiece of Operation Homecoming was a series of 50 writing workshops, my goodness, conducted by distinguished American writers, held at 25 military installations here and overseas. Busy, busy, busy. Most of the 6,000 troops who participated in the workshops had just rotated out of frontline combat. I guess maybe this could be part of a, uh, what do you call that, decompression? Anyway, uh, debriefing probably. Anyway, they were told to write freely, though, without any fear of official constraints or oversight. <laughs> I'll bet. Anyway. Since Operation Homecoming began on April 20th, 2004, there have been more than 10,000 pages of writing, nonfiction, fiction, poetry, that have been sent to the National Endowment for the Arts. An anthology of this work uh, will be published this fall. It will be edited by the historian Andrew Carroll, two R's, two L's, Andrew Carroll, putting out an anthology. The TV documentary, of course, is based on the material that will air 2007 next year. The entire collection will eventually be housed in an open, let's hope, open government archive. If you want to listen to audio recordings of the soldiers reading, um, also photographs, uh, pictures of Iraq, all of that is uh, 
can be found at uh, newyorker.com. That's New Yorker with capital letters on the N and the Y. NewYorker.com if you are uh, on the net. Okay, I'm going to give you a sprinkling, a smattering, bits and pieces of what I looked for when I read just these these uh, letters and, and uh, scattered spins on Iraq. I looked for what I would call the the feminine the 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 negation of the feminine for example uh one of the medics says that uh he was treating iraqis uh, on a hospital ship and they showed real appreciation he said for the care rendered to them i would love to talk to them he writes about family etc but we have been firmly warned not to do this you know, it's like the story of the two soldiers walking down the street and they saw two uh, Iraqi men uh, coming towards them holding hands. They were just friends. Uh, well, we don't know what they were, but uh, they're affectionate. The men are affectionate with each other. And the American Marines said, no, we have to put a stop to that. That's feminizing the guys, you know. Anyway, the what I would call uh, the destruction of family is one of the conditions of war. You know, uh, you have to destroy people's relationships. You have to separate, make people separate, make them think in terms of us and them and enemies. Okay. No more of my silly editorializing. Here's Captain Ryan Kelly, age 36, from Denver, Colorado, emails his mom from Kuwait in December 2003. The worst thing here is not the searing heat or the cold nights. It's the waiting. Waiting for the wind to quit blowing and the sand to quit grinding against your skin. Waiting for a moment of privacy in a tent packed with 70 other men. In a camp packed with 700 other tents. In a base packed with 15,000 soldiers. All looking for a clean place to go to the bathroom waiting for the bone-rattling coughs from dust finer than powdered sugar to stop attacking the lungs, waiting for the generals to order the battalion to move north towards Tikrit, where others, Iraqis, are also waiting, waiting for us. A quick look around my tent will show you who is fighting this war. He gives long lists, pages, yes. There's Sergeant Lillian, a single mother who left her five-year-old daughter at home with a frail and aging mother because nobody else was there to help. There's Melissa and Mike, two sergeants who got married inside the Fort Dix Chapel a month before we deployed. So in love, yet forbidden because of fraternization policies. Forbidden even to hold hands in front of other soldiers. If you watch them closely, you can catch them stealing secret glances at each other. Sometimes I see them sitting together on a box of bottled water, tenderly sharing a lunch. They're so focused on each other that the world seems to dissolve around them. Ah, he goes on and on, yes... War's a hell of a way to spend your honeymoon. I do have a footnote here. I remember, yes, my favorite movie uh, about uh, 
this symbolic nonsense of uh, Ben-Hur, yes. Charlton Heston meets his old buddy from Rome. They clash their uh, spears and say, Down Venus, up Mars. That's what this is all about, you know. No holding hands in front of the other guys. Anyway, I'm not laughing, so help me, I'm not laughing. He goes on to write. There's Martina, 22, a jet black-haired girl who fled Macedonia with her family to escape the genocide of the civil war in Bosnia. Her family ran away to prevent the draft from snatching up her older brother and consuming him in a war they considered absurd and illegal. A few years later, the family, with no place else to run, watched helplessly as the United States flew their daughter into Iraq. She's not even a U.S. citizen, just a foreigner fighting for a foreign country on foreign soil for a foreign cause. She has become... One of my best soldiers. Oh, he ends by writing, I hope you are doing well, Mom. I'm doing my best. For them, for me, for you. I hope it's good enough. Oh, Jesus. Anyway, skipping on, Commander Edward W. Jewell, M.D., age 48, from Washington, D.C., journal entries. He is on the hospital ship USNS Comfort. Oh, March 27, 2003. The Comfort is a large non-combat hospital ship protected by the most powerful Navy, Army, and Air Force in history. What is there to be afraid of? Everything. Danger is all around us. We are really very close to the action. At times, we see oil fires near the shore. However, we cannot really see the combat. Would the Iraqis attack a hospital ship if they could? Why not? In their view, they were invaded by mercenary infidels who deserve no better. March 28th. Sickening sight. A helicopter down wash blows a stack of letters overboard. Who knows what was lost? Last letter to save a troubled relationship, a fat check, notice of tax audit. We'll never know, that's war. The doctors are all bored from underutilization, but the surgeons seem particularly restless. There are so many of them and not enough cases to fill the time. March 29th, the old Navy jargon, belay my last, meaning disregard my last statement, applies to my commentary from yesterday. We got creamed with fresh casualties last night. Thirty new patients, both sides, all needing immediate and significant intervention. The injuries are horrifying. Okay, I'm going to skip over the pages and pages of, uh, oh, God, horrific injuries, yes, I guess the doctors won't be bored anymore. Right, yes. So now they'll have enough to fill their time. He goes on to state our patients are mostly Iraqis. Along with their combat wounds, they are dirty, undernourished, and dehydrated. Oh, and he goes on to describe uh, what he calls now a prison hospital ship. But on deck, he says, it's a different world. For safety, we are on darkened ship status. This means no external lights, all windows covered. 
goal is to make the ship invisible, or nearly so, uh, to evildoers trying to locate us in the dark. It does actually work. The night is moonless. Skies only a slight haze, very dark outside. A magnificent display of stars reminiscent of what you see in Utah. The night has a misty, impressionist feel. People moving about, just vague, dark shapes, voices low. Boys and girls being what they are. Couples are forming on comfort. They drift into obscure corners. Ghost-like green blobs of fluorescence rise and fall in the water. Jellyfish. Thousands of jellyfish drift and bob about the ship. I watch the stars until my neck hurts. Someone is singing in the dark in a beautiful, strange language. <laughs> he tells me it is Hindi and he is actually practicing for karaoke. I hope he wins. <laughs> April 7th, the prisoners are kept on a separate war deep in the bowels of the ship for security reasons. Uh, lawyers run everything now. We actually have a lawyer on board whose primary job is to ensure we comply with all tenets of the Geneva Conventions. There's press on board all the time. <laughs> the next section is the part about wanting to talk to the Iraqi prisoners about their personal lives, but being firmly warned not to do this. That is not to make human connections with the enemy. Uh, he goes on to talk about uh, the uh, feared... Fedayeen suicide commandos uh, and how some of these very sick boys could just be real bad guys. Yes, forced to fight for the big lie. Uh, he says they're glad to be out of combat. Uh, he said, new in the last 24 hours is a big influx of sick and injured children. We have only one doctor with residency training in pediatrics. Some of the kids are very ill. One was DOA, that's dead on arrival, from drinking kerosene. My God. I'm sorry, that's me breaking in. Uh, we take them all, all the patients, and do our best. There is no long-term care plan for all these patients. The ones who survive will need long-term care. Where will they go? who will care for them after we leave. We have become deeply involved in a humanitarian crisis that we will not be able to extricate ourselves from. April 15th, civilian Iraqi patients are being allowed to move around the ship with escorts, of course. I saw a teenager today smiling, shaking hands with everyone. As he bent to tie his shoe, his sleeve slid up. I saw he had a tattoo on his upper arm. It was a fresh Marine Corps globe and anchor. <laughs> wow, hearts and minds indeed. <laughs> okay, April 17th. We began to discharge stable patients from the comfort 
close to 30 sent back today since somewhere, sadly, these guys don't realize they are not being repatriated. For security reasons, they cannot be told where they are really going. Looking at these pathetic-looking fellows, it's easy to forget that they were the enemy. According to an ICU doctor, one of the most timid-looking teenage patients is actually an identified terrorist. Another patient awoke from surgery, disoriented to place, asking if he had been sent home to Syria. <laughs> the Comfort, that's the ship, receives a visit from CENTCOM, the name for the headquarters group for the entire war. <laughs> this bunch of bureaucrats come on board to give us an overview of the medical situation. We hope to hear something concrete about our own status, what is planned for us, how we can offload our patients, and mostly when can we go home. Instead of insight and clarity, we get more obscuring mud in the eye. The formal presentation is tiresome, trite, and uninformative. It takes 50 minutes to get the PowerPoint working. The speaker uses too much army-specific jargon. He admits that our ship is the most stable, established, productive medical unit in the theater. The hospitals in Iraq have been looted and are barely functioning. A Q&A session follows. The discussion is overheated. Uh, it is explained that Iraqi casualties were put on helicopters by well-meaning altruistic U.S. troops, even though they were told not to do this. They offer no explanation for why all the Iraqis ended up in our hospital. They thank us for all our hard work. Tell us they feel our pain, say that war is hell. It's not very convincing or reassuring, because these guys all look rested, tend, and pain-free to us. <laughs> That's the end of the doctor on the comfort. I think this is amazing that, you see, some of the troops are trying to do the right thing in spite of their orders, trying to get Iraqi casualties onto a hospital ship. Uh, oh, boy. Ah, Yes. Next section is Staff Sergeant Parker. Uh, I cannot pronounce his last name. G-Y-O-K-E-R-E-S. From uh, Howell, Michigan, age 30. Personal Essays. November 2003. I know a number of you have been curious about what it's like over here. So I'll take you on a small mental voyage. Go to your vacuum, open the canister, pour it all over you, your bed, your clothing, and your personal effects. Now, roll in it until it's in your eyes, nose, ears, hair, and, well, you get the picture. You know it's just perfect when you slap your chest and cough from the dust cloud you kicked up. And no, there is no escape. Trust me, you just get used to it. Time for hygiene. Walk to the nearest bathroom. In my case, it's a thousand-foot trudge over loose gravel. Ever stagger to the john at 0400? Try it in a frozen rock garden. It gets really freaking cold here at night. I don't even feel like talking about the latrine experience. All I have to say is that after the first time, I went back to the tent and felt like either crying or or lighting myself on 
fire to remove the filth. (laughs) Skip along here. He says, please don't get the impression that all we do all day is run around and act like stormtroopers. Our guns are for our self-defense. They're an absolute last resort, nothing more. Most days pass by smoothly with only funny stories to break up the monotony. A week ago, for instance, Geraldo Rivera. (laughs) Geraldo Rivera arrived to do a report for Fox. As he was going into his shtick, just as the camera zoomed in on his face, a trooper in the crowd positioned just over Geraldo's shoulder and visible only in the midsection, quote, adjusted himself, unquote on live national television. Uh, Footnote here, that means, of course, that he grabbed his crotch. Anyway, he adjusted himself on live national television in prime time. This was the same trooper who got kidney stones and was shipped to Baghdad to have a CT scan and whose convoy was attacked while he was there. When he came back, the army doctor informed him that he had two more stones, which he then painfully passed over the next two weeks. If there's a lightning storm, I'm running away from this kid because he is cursed or blessed as he's still here, still alive. And he didn't lose a stripe after the Pentagon called the base commander the next day and wanted to know why reporters in the morning national press briefing were asked about an airman being obscene live on primetime Fox News. Oh, for God's sakes, the kid had to scratch. He had no idea that the camera was zooming in at that exact moment. And yes, he is one of my crew. God bless him. I was told that today he received a letter of reprimand for, and I quote directly, quote, an immature, childish, and obscene gesture that intentionally defamed the U.S. Air Force. Well, was it bad timing? Yes, was it bad manners? Probably. But was it, as the reprimand further stated, quote, a direct action known as a package check? Ah, no. Once again, I have another one of my footnotes. (laughs) Yes, um, we're always worried about how things look. Yes. The note that the guy grabbing himself is a serious, serious obscenity. Good Lord. Anyway, um, he goes on about, uh, yes, the kids in Iraq. Let's skip to a woman, Captain Donna Kohout, K-O-H-O-U-T, 32. She's from Colorado. She's writing to her community church. Uh, she's writing from Japan in April of 2002, and she's left the Middle East. She writes, I'm still praising God for the opportunity to spend five months in the Middle East, both to serve in the largest conflict of our day and to witness the wonders. He, that is, capital He, God, was working at Prince Sultan Air Base in Saudi Arabia, where I lived. I don't know how to describe the feeling that there was a spiritual element to what we were doing. 
Oh, dear. Oh, when I first arrived, I did a double take when I looked at the maps in the back of my Bible and recognized the locations of the cities we were flying over. Talil, that's T-A-L-L-I-L, had been Ur, that's capital U-R, Ur, meaning the original, yes, the Ur of the Chaldeans, the birthplace of Abraham, the father of the Israelites. Another footnote here, the, yes, all the patriarchal religions of that uh, area go back to uh, Abraham. Anyway, she goes on to write, When God punished the Israelites with exile from the land that he had given them, they were taken to Babylon near present-day Al-Hilah. This is also where Daniel survived his famed bout in the lion's den. During their years of exile in the Babylonian Empire, the Israelites camped out near Napur, or the current Al-Kut. Uh, well, another footnote, she certainly, certainly got some of her history right. Yes, ancient Mesopotamia, she knows all about it. I wish I could describe the feeling of flying across uh, what we call the T.E. Tigris-Euphrates. And, yes, she goes on a great deal about the Euphrates River and the desert. And uh, she talks about uh, all the places made famous by CNN. <laughs> I'm afraid her history. Oh, well, okay, yes, CNN has made all these towns famous, Baghdad, of course. On a clear day, she says, I looked down at the rich greens of the valley between the Tigris and Euphrates and pondered over the fact that these were the rivers that I'd learned about in church and school my whole life. Genesis describes the Garden of Eden standing at the headwaters of two rivers, two of which are the Tigris and Euphrates. The places, the garden just north of Basra uh, shows us, yes, they were within sight when I flew there. Uh, Abraham, Daniel, Ezra, uh, the whole displaced Israelite nation, perhaps even Adam and Eve, trod ground I'm looking down on daily. Oh, this lady's a, a pilot, I think. Uh, yes. Anyway, uh, we complain about their about being out here for three months because it's so hot and barren and windy and flat and sandy and dry. Well, no wonder the Israelites complained for 40 years. She goes on about crossing the Sinai Peninsula, the exodus from Egypt and the entrance into the Promised Land and Jerusalem. Ah, yes, praise God for the safety he has provided uh, to so many of us over the last several months. And please continue to pray for the Iraqi people and the soldiers over there now. There is a long and unconventional road ahead of them still. The curious choice of words. Um, that was Captain Donna, yes, she, Donna Kohout from Colorado. Uh, she has a biblical view of things, and she writes about the unconventional road ahead for the Iraqi people. Okay, there's pages and pages of this stuff, folks. I, I wish I, ha I have marked at least five more, 
five more uh, letters, writers. Yes, um, some of the stuff is pretty cruel, but if you are a school teacher, I think you might recommend this. It's called Soldier Stories. You will find it uh, in the New Yorker of June the 12th. And it's a project from the National Endowment for the Arts. They asked thousands of veterans and returning soldiers to write about their experiences. Uh, Right. It ends, yes, the guys looking at the scrawled words on the walls as they leave on the last plane, epitaphs written in loving memory. The guys who come after us will wonder who we were. Check it out. It's in 12 June, New Yorker. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Foundation for Sustainable Development invites you to its wine, social, and art auction to raise money in support of sustainable development projects with grassroots organizations in Latin America, East Africa, and India on June 24th from 6 until 9 p.m. at Fort Mason, Building C in San Francisco. Enjoy great wine, hors d'oeuvres, and live music while having the opportunity to bid on works of art by world-renowned artists. 100% of proceeds benefit FSD's work in developing countries. We need your help to make this event a success on June 24th. This event benefits the Foundation for Sustainable Development, which is a nonprofit organization. For more information, go to fsdinternational.org.